Apache Cassandra is a distributed database that can handle large amounts of data with no single point of failure. Since 2008, Cassandra has been widely adopted, and the software and the community around Cassandra have grown steadily. A software developer interacting with Cassandra uses CQL, the Cassandra query language. ScyllaDB is another open-source database that has been created to be totally compatible with CQL. By complying with CQL, the internals of ScyllaDB can be a vastly different software rewrite from Cassandra. ScyllaDB uses C++, whereas Cassandra uses Java. ScyllaDB improves upon the performance characteristics of Cassandra by optimizing for modern hardware. And Dor Laor joins the show today to discuss how ScyllaDB does all of this. For Q3, I am looking for sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily or you want to advertise on the show, please send me an email at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the episode, please share it on Facebook or Twitter. The show grows by word of mouth, and the listeners have been very gracious in sharing, and I hope that continues. Dorla Orr is the CEO of ScyllaDB, a database that is compatible with Apache Cassandra. Dor, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello, and uh, good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So let's start by talking about Cassandra, and then we will get into ScyllaDB. So, you know, we've done a couple shows on Cassandra, but I think it's, it can be confusing for some people. So why don't you give us an overview for what Cassandra is and why people use it? Um, so Cassandra is a NoSQL database. Uh, NoSQL stands for not just SQL. Uh, you can ask Larry Allison because he said recently that Oracle is a NoSQL database as well because it's included <laughs> SQL. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the guy has sense of humor and uh, money, <laughs> uh, so I bet he's right. Um, Cassandra specifically is, is one type of family of databases within the NoSQL that they can get segmented into uh, subfamilies as well. Uh, you can find uh, the document store databases like uh, MongoDB and Couchbase, which are kind of schemaless, and you store their not real document but JSON objects, which is really good to get started. But uh, later on, they, they can bite back because you, you haven't given a lot of thought for your schema, and that's why. Uh, you'll get probably less valuable data out of it or then later on uh, discover that the schema actually resides within your data and you, you'll have uh, difficulties uh, that related to that. Um, Cassandra is uh, part of the family which is more of a table but uh, more like a a regular SQL database, but without transactions and without joins. Cassandra, uh, so you can think about just as a table with uh, columns and rows. Uh, specifically, Cassandra and also Scylla, because it's just compatible, uh, has a wide row structure. Uh, I'll cover that soon, but, but basically it means that uh, within your cells in the table, you can store them not just standard field like fields like int, string, or binary blob, you can store their uh, uh, tiny tables and uh, sub-columns inside of them. Um, so it's, it's schema-full, and you can manage schema. 
And um, the, the advantage, the, the big advantage of canceling uh, transactions and joins is that you can scale out very, very well. Cassandra can scale up to dozens, hundreds, even, and even thousands of nodes in a single cluster. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, it's the best distributed uh, um, distributed database or the distributed infrastructure out there because all of the rest of the gang don't scale that much. And uh, just to, to, to be sure, it, it keeps all of the results consistent in disk. So it does. it's not an in-memory solution because data gets written to the disk. And that leads me to another subset of the NoSQL family, which is the uh, in-memory type of key value stores like uh, Memcache or Redis, uh, which, which allows you to keep data in, in the cache and respond pretty fast. But uh, normally, they're, they're either schema-less, just provide key values. Sometimes they provide more sophisticated verbs. And uh, normally, they don't. They, they, they are semi-persistent. So... Uh, data isn't uh, synchronized immediately to to the disk. Uh, there's quite a big of a lag, and uh, also there's a limitation that you can't store more data in the disk than your RAM size. So everything is has its up advantages and disadvantages. So you man, you mentioned that. Cassandra does not have transactions. And when people hear that, they might be like, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. So you can't write to it or you can't delete from it. What Describe what that means. Like when you say Cassandra doesn't have transactions, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. um, so actually Cassandra do have uh, some uh, type of transactions that are recently new, not that new. I think it's around two years old, but they, they are called lightweight transactions. But if we, uh, most of the users don't tend to use them. So let's focus about the non-transaction type of uh, uh, Cassandra accesses, which is the most common ones. Uh, it means that you access the database and you store the information there, but it, in a non-transaction way. So uh, it's it's sometimes it's quite tricky, and I and I ex actually explained that today for a customer. So uh, when data reaches the database, uh, Cassandra has a configurable replication factor. So normally you wouldn't just uh, store the data in a single node, but you're going to uh, replicate it into other nodes. And you, normally, people just choose Chrome. So once the data reaches a Chrome of a subset of uh, your cluster, then the client gets an acknowledge back, and uh, this write happens. However, this isn't quite a, a, a transaction, because uh, let, let's say you started the write process and the uh, coordinator for this operation, uh, which is the node that uh, the client access uh, a first uh, client can access. There are kind of uh, different criterias to picking a node, but any node can be uh, a coordinator. So when the coordinator starts sending the writes to all of the replicas uh, and, and waits for a a majority, let, let's say if it's a Chrome, let, let's say there is a failure and the, the entire network failed for some reason, and just a single server 
uh, accepted and actually managed to write the, the data and all of the other servers failed. So of course the client, uh, either the coordinator managed to send a, a negative response to the client or uh, the, the client didn't hear and timed out. So the client assumes that the data didn't reach the cluster and uh, it's okay. But actually the data did reach one node and when the cluster will get reconnected, the data will get propagated to the other nodes in the cluster because it wasn't a, a transaction. Uh, you can think about transaction, a, a simplified way of transaction is two-phase commit. So there wasn't any two-phase commit here. And that's why data that reaches a single node can still be there in the database. So that's thing, something that users should think about. So I think the distinction that you're drawing is when we talk about transactions in traditional databases, you can tell me if this is correct or incorrect. We think about transactions in traditional databases. We think about these atomic, um, like you said, two-phase commit or three-phase commit or whatever, where um, it, it, you have strong consistency guarantees. And with Cassandra, it's more of this append-only log of things that are happening across the data and nodes just catch up as they get the chance to and the 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 delete process you know the 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 delete process uses tombstones and that's the eventual consistency version of a delete um but the main point is that you have this eventual consistent um transaction log of things that eventually propagate to all the nodes and that is in contrast to the strongly consistent two or three phase commit type of distributed database would you say that's accurate Yep, it's it's quite accurate. Okay, so um, as we ease into the conversation of Scylla DB, we should talk a little bit about the query language that Cassandra uses. Um, so Cassandra uses a query language called CQL. Why does Cassandra need a unique query language? Why can't it use an SQL variant or a query language like Mongo? Um, so CQL tries to mimic the... Uh, a, more sophisticated, uh, feature-rich SQL uh, verb. Uh, so it's kind of similar, and if you're familiar with SQL, you feel at home uh, relatively fast. Uh, however, it lacks features like joins and some of the aggregations aren't there, uh, and that's kind of a limitation. Uh, again, uh, those features were dropped from the database deliberately in order to allow better high availability and better scaling out. Uh, so there was an intention and was a, a thought were given uh, to these things. I think that as we go along, then uh, there is a, a convergence in the database world. So uh, the CQL language uh, evolved, and you can see things like uh, secondary indexes and materialized views. Uh, you can store JSON uh, or pass and extract uh, JSON objects. Uh, the where clause evolved in CQL. So I think that there's a fairly good chance that uh, CQL and SQL won't be that different uh, if we look uh, at the medium-term future. Uh, and if we compare what Cassandra had in the past, uh, it, it was almost schema-less when uh, the Thrift protocol was used and there was no uh, good language like CQL. Uh, so eventually it's, it's a good uh, midway uh, 
a compromise and going forward uh, i think that we eventually we'll see sql uh, almost a full sql uh, form and i mentioned before that the lightweight transactions exist in cassandra so uh, many times uh, you may not need transactions for data that is about recommendation engines uh, social information data uh, IoT data, but you would want transactions for data like uh, user IDs, uh, passwords, etc. Um, so th that's why lightweight transactions were added. Uh, nice thing is to see, to observe databases like Postgres, where they try to add more of a J JSON verb. So th that's why I claim that uh, Con Convergers is starting and did all of the database will move uh, in the winning languages and the winning verbs will, will eventually uh, be more common in more databases. What are the shortcomings of Cassandra? Um, so the, the, there's a couple. So first, no joins and no acids. So, but I, I think that users are used to it, it and that's why uh, there is no SQL databases beyond uh and just uh, normal SQLs. But beyond that, there's a couple of things. Um, first, Cassandra uses log structured mercury. Uh, it, it means that append only, and you, you mentioned that uh, deletes translate to actually writing data, which is the tombstone. Uh, but in the background, uh, there is no magic and it makes writes very, very fast. Uh, however, it, it's it's it comes on the expense where there is, should be a background process called compaction that needs to, in the background, the database needs to merge all of the copies that were written to a single key just to, to keep the latest and greatest form and uh, uh, collapse all of those tombstones so uh, the disk will, won't get filled. Uh, so writes are, uh, are relatively fast on the expense of reads and also on some expense of... Uh, a administration burden because uh, a database a, a person or DevOps person needs to uh, manage and tune the database. So that's one thing. Fast writes on the expense of reads and, and some admin burden. Uh, second of all, it's it uses Java. Uh, Java is terrific language for management, but not for high-speed I/O. Uh, it may has given to the developers a relatively fast start, but as it's evolved, then it, it's just uh, a pain. And uh, Cassandra developers uh, try to constantly move objects from the heap to off hit, off off hip, and that's of course defeats the purpose. Because uh, why do you use Java on the first hand? You you like to let the, the framework handle the, the memory management. So they don't get to enjoy from the features that Java provides and they do suffer and, and Java users suffer from very complex uh, tunables. Uh, they, they suffer b due to garbage collection, which uh, eventually reach uh, a phase it's called stop the world. And the entire, all of the threads need to stop uh, and make sure that the garbage collection will run and clean the memory. Uh, and and uh, as, the, as the amount of RAM 
uh, constantly increase, and not to mention new memory model like uh, non-volatile RAM uh, approaching, then the, the problem will continue to uh, grow and grow. Uh, so that's quite painful for uh, uh, for the users. So I would say, and eventually it translates to uh, large latencies, unpredictable latencies, and uh, also the the performance level that a single node can provide uh, aren't that good. Cassandra uh, uses off-the-shelf Java and uses uh, good generic mechanisms uh, that comes from Linux, like the page cache, which is terrific for caching uh, disk ac accesses. But since it's generic and not uh, tailored, then uh, it's not ideal for performance. And right. So, so you've touched on all these shortcomings, um, and many of them are essentially leading to some severe latency that you have improved upon in SciLaDB. And SciLaDB is a NoSQL column store database that is compatible with the CQL query language. So this is essentially a database that is Cassandra compatible. You can drop out your Cassandra database and replace it with SciLaDB. That's at least the claim. So explain why you started building SciLaDB. Um, so the... the I'll try to shorten the long story. Uh, in the past, we built a unikernel called OSV, which is still a project that uh, we support or try to support in best effort, but it's not relevant to Scylla today. And uh, we we wanted to run a variety of workloads. Uh, one, it was optimized for Java mainly, not just, but for Java. Um, and... Uh, Cassandra was one of the sexiest workloads we wanted to support. And while our uh, OSV operating system, and, and we had our own kernel, uh, had a really fast uh, and slim kernel with uh, our own TCP IP stack, uh, we, want, we saw that we, we managed to boost the Redis performance by 80%. And when we uh, executed uh, Cassandra, then the, the performance gains were almost lost. There were sometimes gains of 20% more, but sometimes uh, it went away. And we observed that uh, although enough resources are given to Cassandra, Cassandra can't utilize all of them. Um, so we understood that there is a large opportunity for improvement. Uh, we know that uh, some companies that run a thousand clusters of thousand machines, uh, at the time, Google uh, engineers published a benchmark of using 300 Cassandra virtual machines in order to reach 1 million operations per second. And coming from uh, a system programming background, uh, most of us came from the KVM project, the, the hypervisor. Then we, we knew what uh, a, a modern machines are capable for, of. And we knew that it's totally ridiculous. Like a single machine can, can do this type of performance. And we proved that that's what we thought before. And that's what we proved today with Scylla because we have benchmarks that show that it, a single machine can get to 1.8 million CQL requests per second. And uh, that's quite dramatic improvement. 
So Scylla's approach to NoSQL design, uh, obviously you mentioned the fact that it, uh, you know, takes it takes high, more advantage of the fact that uh, Cassandra is, or or Cassandra like database takes 100 percent of the CPU, 100 percent of the memory. Um, but the Scylla's approach is also optimized for modern hardware. What are the trends in hardware that has shaped your strategy with Scylla? Um, so it, it goes it goes the following. There are mul- multiple things. So the first one is multi-core. Uh, CPU speed uh, stop increasing in, in terms of uh, frequency and uh, transistor Transistors get added. Let, let's not argue about uh, whether more low alive or not, but uh, frequency stopped rising, and instead we have more cores, uh, and it's, it's very challenging to uh, uh, to utilize all of those cores. When uh, I was managing the KVM project, uh, the performance team didn't uh, couldn't find a benchmark that utilized more than 40 to 80 cores because the benchmark itself wasn't scalable. So it, it's quite a challenge for software. Uh, the design that we took with Scylla is, uh, is the design that uh, uh, uses shard per core notion. It means that uh, apart from the fact that we do sharding like uh, many other distributed systems, uh, that, that all do sharding in the cluster level, and we do the exact sharding uh, that uh, Cassandra u- uses. Within each node, we use additional level of sharding, which is transparent from the user. Uh, each shard has a core of itself. Uh, storage people call it thread per core, and it's the exact thing, but extended. So uh, our shards has uh, a single core, uh, or uh, more, more accurately, uh, hyperthread, they have their own memory, so we divide the memory per shard uh, logically, and, and the memory is always numa local because uh, accessing the local memory that uh, resides on your socket is uh, way more, tw- twice as uh, fast than accessing remote more memory on some other socket. And if there are local I.O. devices like multi-unique or sometimes uh, in the future coming up uh, a multi uh storage devices, then we'd, we'd uh, access these devices directly by the core. And the idea is to, to be lockless because each such, such a internal shard owns its data. So there's no need to uh, lock the data. No, there's no locking whatsoever. Uh, locks in x86 are pretty expensive. Uh, first, when they're contendent, and the, the more cores you have, then the more contention then th- that you have. So there's a likelihood that some other core uh, will own that lock and the other cores will just go idle. And even if there is no contention and the locks are uh, have fine granularity, just obtaining the lock, you need to lock the bus and it's very expensive. Uh, so... One mechanism is the multi-core, and the and the answer for it is shard per core. That's one. So you have mentioned these hardware characteristics that you're able to take advantage of, of by re-architecting some of the things that Cassandra does in Scylla. Could Cassandra just be re-architected to take advantage of these characteristics, or is there something that is holding Cassandra back from from doing from taking advantage of these same hardware trends that you mentioned? Uh, 
so the, the answer is yes and yes. So uh, the Cassandra developer observed, uh, naturally they observed Scylla and observed the design. Uh, we're open source and uh, most of, not just the code is open, but also many of our uh, internal discussions are open in our presentations and probably this talk as well. So they, they, they try to re-architect Cassandra and have this uh, a move away from uh, SEDA and uh, have a, sh a similar thread per core approach without regular polling. We know that there, there is some active work about that. However, they don't have a chance to reach the performance level that we have because when you're using C++ like we do instead of Java, then we have direct access to all of the machinery that, uh, and direct system call access and full control of the machine. Uh, when we compile the code, we uh, check and verify the, that the object code is efficient and we don't do just, uh, ver there are no wasted virtual function calls, etc., etc. So uh, I believe that they'll improve in time, but uh, not to the level of performance that uh, we got. Um, hmm. So uh, I think also one uh, kind of edge you have is that Scylla is started from scratch in C++. So obviously there are things that you can do in C++ that you cannot do in Java. Maybe you could touch on the the difference between these two. So I guess first, like, why was Cassandra written in Java? Was it just that, well, I, you could just talk about why Cassandra was written in Java. And then why, what does C++ provide for these purposes that Java cannot? Um, so without opening a religious war, um, religion war, then... Uh, Always C++ is, is a low-level language, while Java is high-level one. Uh, so lower-level programmers will always have a benefit. Uh, they may need to, it will, may, may take more while to, longer time to develop, but uh, the outcome is supposed to be better. Uh, why they chose the Java? M many big, da big data projects start with Java. There's a a good things that happen in Java where it's relatively easy to share code and share packages like uh, Thrift implementation and uh, you can just uh, potentially load a Cassandra jar to some other project and, and right now you merge the two. So the, the, there are uh, benefits coming from the Java world. Uh, in C++, there are libraries like Boost, which provides you a great basic building box, but not to the level of uh, protocols like Thrifts, etc. Uh, but I, I would choose C++ over and over again and again. It's, it's um, not just a personal uh, choice, but it, it's the more rational choice when you, your goal is uh, to maximize the machine resources. Like we just started to to speak about uh, recent trends in uh, computers, and so multi-core is just one of them. And again, uh, Java uh, has a problem because uh, there's always the state of uh, garbage collection in software world. Beyond that, then it's the increasing amount of memory. 
where the Java heap is relatively small. Uh, in the past, the standard collector had like a recommended heap of uh, something between 8 to 16 gigabytes, and that's it. Uh, later on with G1, then I think G1 can do 64 or 128 gigabytes of data, but that still the, isn't that much. Uh, recently, Amazon released uh, a two terabyte machine, and I guess it will just grow with the non-volatile technologies. Uh, so that's it's not just the, the multi-core, it's the, the, the memory as well. And uh, accessing devices directly uh, the, uh, we just started with the performance world, so uh, we didn't cover that, but uh, we support two types of uh, I.O. stacks. We support the Linux uh, TCP IP stack, the, the standard one, and we have uh, an Im- implementation of uh, user space TCP IP with the same reactive model implemented in C++ that we have, which provides twice the performance uh, when we re-implemented a, a, pro- a protocol like Memcached. So we, in the future, we're going to... Uh, it's already work, works with Scylla, but it's not hardened yet. And, uh, but, but in the future, we'll see another level of performance gain. Uh, similar things are with the file system. Uh, we use handful of technologies, our own caches. We bypass the Linux page cache. And uh, we plan of having our own file system, so we won't use standard off-the-shelf file system and go directly to the block devices. So when we're talking about SolidDB, we're talking in these uh, abstract terms. Let's make this a little more tangible. Could you walk through a read and a write with SciladB and explain how each of these respectively compares to a read and a write in Cassandra? Um, all right, I'll do that. Uh, I think that uh, my developers are way better than me, so it's uh, certainly about uh, the Cassandra read and write path. Uh, but but I'll, I'll try to explain. It doesn't have to be too low level, level, just maybe mm-hmm. enough to highlight the differences. Um, so th- basically the similar thing is that uh, the client uh, has a read request and uh, it, it picks a coordinator, which is just one of the cluster nodes. Uh, let sometimes coordinator get picked by uh, th- their proximity, so the, the the nearest node will get picked. Um, it's again similar in in the uh, between the two databases are identical in in that respect, and the same client is used both by both databases. So the, the coordinator parses the CQL request, decides that it's it's a read request, and um, what we do is uh, we issue a read that goes to the local disk, and uh, in parallel, asynchronously, we issue a read to um, a number to the the number of uh, which is the table is configured to, or this specific uh, operation because you, you you can have even special each operation may have its own configurable semantics, con- configurable consistency. Uh, let's say it's a quorum, so uh, for simplicity. So the, uh, a, a, the cluster needs to collect a quorum of requests, 
of read requests from uh, the majority of the servers in the cluster. The, the idea behind it is that uh, since the uh, uh, since it's a, a eventual consistency database, then uh, would like you'd like to consolidate data that it may be more recent. Um, so the, the coordinator, coordinator starts collecting all of those reads uh, asynchronously, and when you get uh, large enough uh, a majority or large enough number, then um, the answer propagates back to the client. So that's identical with the two databases. Uh, sometimes it's it's uh, it it's goes even uh, for more interesting cases. Uh, if there is, uh, if the data isn't the same when uh, a return from all of those Chrome of uh, nodes, and uh, there is a difference be between the version of the data, then uh, the entire data set will get uh, the, the entire uh, a set of replicas that own this token range will get queried. And uh, consolidation will happen in, in the background. And just when the, the Chrome will reach a consolidated uh, a Chrome of the servers, then the data will propagate back to the client. Pretty complex, uh, but identical in the two databases. Um, now, uh, what, what we do is we, for the reads, we issue reads with OData. It means that we bypass the page cache. Uh, and we manage our own cache. Uh, it's it's a really important uh, advantage because uh, if data is in the cache, then we'll immediately respond back. If data is not in the cache, then we, we, we're going to issue a synchronous DMA operation uh, for that uh, disk, ac disk access, and we'll just read the exact uh, object that we were asked for. So if this object is, uh, let, let's say, uh, 512 bytes, uh, and and that's I pick this number because it's uh, a a sector of the disk, of smaller disks. Then uh, we'll just read this exact sector, and that would be it. Uh, now, since we we do not, we have the notion of thread per core within each of those threads, we we have our own scheduler. So once we issue this asynchronous DMA, immediately the disk is slow relatively to the CPU. So we'll immediately uh, deschedule uh, this context and we'll go to run some other context. Uh, with us, uh, we don't have threads. So these contexts are basically lambda functions. And our cores can are capable of running millions of uh, lambda functions. Uh, we, we can do one million operation per core of these lambda functions. So it's very, very fast. And when the disk returns, then we uh, uh, release the, the answer back to the client. In the Cassandra case, and it's kind of similar, not just to Cassandra, but for standard uh, uh, multi-threaded applications that uses the Linux page cache. What happens is that uh, a, a thread from uh, from the listening pool uh, gets scheduled, processes the request, and start issuing all of the uh, requests, hopefully asynchronously. Sometimes not all of the network requests for the replicas to, to retrieve the, the read um, may not be fully asynchronous or may 
they, they may still consume threads. So sometimes if you have a lot of requests going on, then you, you may cons uh, exhaust your thread pool. In addition, let's say the data is not in the, in the cache. Uh, the application, Cassandra, I mean, the database application in our case, uh, doesn't have the knowledge that the data is not in the cache because the one who manages the cache is the kernel. So it just accesses, uh, it, it just accesses the data, but uh, the kernel uh, issues a page fault. And page fault is a pretty uh, expensive operation. The, the thread gets descheduled. It's uh, heavyweight in terms of uh, CPU and also in terms of uh, latency. And if you have limited number of thread pool, then the, the, the context of the threads will get uh, blocked until data will get back. Uh, so you couldn't do one million operation per core of these accesses. You, you can do thousands of them. And that's pretty significant difference between the two. Hmm. So that's, that's a great comparison. I think that covers a lot of the ground of how the two databases differ. What about the scalability model? How does SciladB's scalability model differ from Cassandra's? Um, it's uh, an easy question. It's not. In terms of, of scaling out, it, it's the same thing. So uh, we have the gossip protocol. We, we have um, the uh, multi-data center um, a protocol. We have snitches. It's exactly the same. Uh, and you can scale to hundreds and thousands of nodes. Uh, usually with our performance, then there's no need to reach 1,000 nodes, but it's, you're certainly capable of doing it. Okay. It, so then a question that has uh, less similarity with the two databases. Um, what about memory management? SciladB has no pauses under compaction or garbage collection. In Cassandra, how often does the cluster undergo compaction or garbage collection, and how does this inhibit performance? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the two databases, and, and it's not just it, many databases that have low structured merge and or just need to update new nodes that joins the cluster, have background operation, uh, as opposed to the foreground operation, which are the, the regular uh, I.O. processing and uh, semi-transactions. Um, so uh, what would uh, a, a, a standard user would desire is that the foreground operations will have uh, SLA, which won't get hurt by the background operation. Because if, if you're in the process of streaming data to a new node or doing compaction, then uh, most times then you, you, uh, you can wait a little bit longer and you'll prefer that the foreground operation won't get, won't notice, and not in case in, in throughput, and you won't hurt uh, latency neither. And and that's quite of a painful area in Cassandra. Uh, for instance, in all of those operations like compactions, repair, and streaming, uh, Cassandra has a static configuration for them, and uh, you can limit uh, those operations operations like um, in streaming you, you can limit it for, for 25 megabytes a second uh, and this way let's say that you, you have enough bandwidth more than that so you're guaranteed that uh, sort of a, it's a weak guarantee that uh, foreground processing won't, won't get hurt 
but it, it comes in the expense that uh, streaming will take a very long time. And uh, if you have, let's say, ter terabyte of data in your nodes, then it, it, the hours and days will go by until you'll manage to stream it up, it, it all to a new node. Uh, and that's really a real problem, especially if you'd like to decommission an old node in favor of a new node. Um, and that the same happens with compaction. You you may not compact fast enough. Um, so if you if you conf if you put the thresholds uh, too low, then uh, you'll fall behind with the background operations and you'll suffer. If if you fall behind compactions, then you'll have multiple stable files. And in order to read, you won't just read a single file, you'll, you'll read a lot of files, sometimes dozens of them for a single read operation. And that's horrible for performance. Uh, instead, we dynamically uh, set this balance and, and control this balance. Uh, before we even... Uh, a, a, before we even boot our, our Scylla daemon, uh, we run a, a simple... A automatic script that uh, basically it's a benchmark and the purpose of this benchmark is to calculate the sweet spot of maximum disk concurrency uh, if you increase the disk today that's also related to your questions about modern hardware uh, if you take SSDs it's not just uh, one rigid, rigid uh, format it, it's composed out of uh, dozens and maybe a lot a lot more of uh, smaller disk, disks or units combined together. And that's why you can access the disk concurrently. Uh, but there is a limit to the number of concurrent requests, of course. Uh, there, there's a point where you add concurrency and you get better throughput and still keep uh, your low latency. And the, beyond a certain point, let's say be, beyond 100 concurrent operations uh, for uh, modern fast disks, then uh, requests will just queued up by the disk controller. Uh, they may also be queued by the file system uh, code as well. Our benchmark script uh, automatically finds this uh, sweet spot, and we have an I/O scheduler with inside uh, in user space uh, inside Scylla. It's again, it's something which is totally transparent from the user. Um, now, this uh, IO scheduler role is to make sure that uh, if we do not uh, reach the point of maximum disk concurrency, then it goes in full speed ahead and just uh, a, a forwards all of the requests directly to the file system and later on for, to the disks. Uh, so it means that if you're compacting, then you can compact in one gigabyte per second if you ha you do not have foreground workload, uh, workloads, uh, high workloads. However, if the you, you have parallel workloads for coming from the background and for, from the foreground, then uh, our I/O scheduler uh, do not fill be, uh, the disk beyond uh, the point of maximum concurrency. And it has its own prioritization mechanism. And we prioritize, we have different classes for reads, for writes, for compaction, for repair, and uh, for streaming. And uh, dynamically, we set the priority between them. Uh, so uh, as long as uh, it's not a must to compact, then we'll prioritize writes and reads. 
and uh, latency won't 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 get hurt a bit, um, and and that's that, that's how the system works. And the benefit is is not only to have very good performance all of the time for your background and for, for your foreground operations, then uh, there is no hassle because uh, tuning uh, a Cassandra system uh, for that is pretty night a nightmare. And even if you manage to do that, then it will be accurate just for the particular workloads that you tuned it or uh, the particular machine that you run it on. If the characteristics of your uh, workload or machine change, then you'll need to tune it all over again. Uh, in, in, in our case, no tuning whatsoever. We, we do that automatically. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the technical internals of ScyllaDB and how it compares to Cassandra. I want to talk a little bit about the the business model and the just the ethos of the product and the company. So, um, ScyllaDB is not open source in contrast to Cassandra. It is. And it, it's actually, oh, it is open source. Yep, it's it's full open source. So today, oh, I'm it's, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. I was totally confused about that. It's off by one. That's fine. Ah, when when was it? Was it has it always been open source? Um, ever since we went out of stealth mode uh, last September at the Cassandra Summit. So, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm so sorry about that. I don't mean to spread the misinformation that I must have read at some point. or I, I'm not sure what but happened. It, okay. It always has been uh, open source. And uh, okay. in return, you can go and uh, just mark a Stark or uh, a cloned, git clone the, the, the code. Okay, uh, that's that's totally fine. Um, so so um, then you know what are the what's the the business model like for ScyllaDB, the company? Um, here we didn't innovate much. Uh, our strength is in technology and uh, in business. Uh, we'd like to do fair business as many as other open source vendors. Uh, we, we worked at Red Hat before. And we're familiar with the the industry, and our business model is uh, subscriptions. So those who would like to consume our open so- source business, we welcome them, and we we actually encourage them. Uh, today there are sometimes the, uh, we participated at Percona Live, and back then, like we presented, and uh, uh, we discovered that uh, there are folks running. Uh, Ceiling productions where we, we, we didn't know even that uh, they were using it. Uh, so that's, that's the open source. Uh, we, we actually have more than a single open source uh, project. There is uh, the Scylla, which is a, an end user database, uh, which you consume. And there is also the engine behind Scylla, which is called Seastar, uh, and has most of the sophistication that I, I described. And that's another independent open source project that uh, we created for Scylla. Uh, but one can take uh, the CSR project and uh, implement another protocol uh, and try to replace some other uh, old-fashioned system with it. Uh, so that's the open source. Uh, in, in terms of uh, business, then we're a company, a VC-backed company, and, and we definitely need... need uh, to uh, to be profitable, uh, so we do subscriptions, uh, yearly subscriptions, and in those su- subscriptions we provide support, uh, we provide uh, 
a long lifetime guarantee uh, and uh, a enterprise version of our database. So one area that I think is interesting about the business and just about the project itself is the fact that you can kind of take advantage of some things from the Cassandra community um, because you are CQL compatible. And it reminds me of a show that we did recently with Citus Data, which is a PostgreSQL extension that makes distributed Postgres easier. And one thing that the guest uh, from Citus, Oskun, he said was that you know, when you use the Postgres extension functionality, you can extend Postgres, um, and you don't you don't want because you don't want to fork Postgres. You don't want to fork it because then you lose all the support of the open source community. And it's but what I you know heard when I was uh, preparing for this show was that SciLaDB, despite being a complete rewrite of much of the Cassandra functionality, because it's all in C and you do all these things differently. You can take advantage of things like the Cassandra Spark connector, um, which is pretty interesting because you actually, in this case, you actually are getting to leverage some of the developing uh, things that are going on in the Cassandra community. So I'm just curious to what extent um, that is the case where you can con- where you can leverage the the ongoing development of the Cassandra uh, community, despite being a completely different database. Mm-hmm. So the, the the difference between the two examples that you've given is the uh, lo- location of uh, where those tools hook. Uh, so the, in, in the Postgres, Postgres case, then uh, the, the plugin runs in the context of the database. Uh, so you, you can utilize the underlying there, there but, and, and it's a plugin that gives you additional functionality, if I understand that correctly. Uh, where on on the it's it's more mostly the progress model. Uh, you we uses everything beneath and provides additional uh, functionality on top of it. Uh, in our case, it's kind of the opposite, where uh, we re-implemented everything uh, underneath, but everything on top of the database uh, of each of the databases, meaning either Cassandra or Scylla, remains the same because. Uh, we're compatible in, in CQL wire protocol. So all of the client sides remain the same. And the only way to uh, access the database is uh, using a client. So that, that's, that's the way Postgres get, a, I'm sorry, that, that's the way Spark accesses uh, Cassandra or Scylla using CQL. Uh, that's the only connector possible. Um, the same with uh, ODBC driver or uh, a Presto project that uh, has uh, Cassandra bindings and, and works nicely over Scylla uh, or some other time series databases like CairoDB uh, and so forth. So uh, all of the tools, uh, all of the client sides remain the same, just the database is replaced. Okay, so as we begin to wrap up, I'd love to know what the SciLaDB team is working on today and what is in the future for the project. All right. Um, so um, today, we actually, this very day, we uh, released 1.2 release of ours. Uh, this 1.2 release included items that were left uh, in the... Uh, from before, like alter key space functionality, 
uh, we added CQL compression, uh, so you can compress the, the client to server protocol uh, and a bunch of other goodies. Uh, mainly, I, I can say that uh, we were really busy and we also reduced latency. Uh, we, we have a very interesting technology blog where we uh, blog about uh, our latency journey. And uh, I really recommend readers to go to that blog in general, uh, in particularly about the latency gains that we uh, just released. It, it, they were not related to that related to Scylla because Scylla is, is a regular Linux process. So if you go to that blog, you can uh, read about our journey about uh, a, a tuning the, uh, schedule, the Linux scheduler properties tuning C groups within Linux, uh, tuning. Um, a, we have a, a Java JMX proxy daemon, which in, in order to keep compatibility, so users will able to work with Scylla the way they work with Cassandra using the Node tool, we added uh, a Java proce process just for uh, admin compatibility. And guess what? This tiny Java function a process uh, increased our latency, uh, so we, we had to handle it as well. Uh, so we, eventually, the maximum latency we measured was 1.8 millisecond. That's the maximum, not the 99 percentile, but but the maximum latency. Anyway, that that's what we released today. Uh, and in the, uh, I think in around the next uh, two three uh, months ahead will close some gap that we have with Cassandra. It's totally compatible, but there were uh, several small features that we were left left behind, like uh, sometimes small but important, like, like secondary indexes and materialized views. Uh, one compaction strategy got left behind, so day tiered compaction will come next month, and things of uh, this sort. Cool. Well, Dor, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I feel like we went deep into Cassandra uh, to the level where we were able to compare it to Scylla, which is, I feel like it's a great accomplishment for the listeners. So thanks for coming on the show and um, great continued success with uh, ScyllaDB. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Okay, likewise. 